Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the new wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Earlier this year, we actually began a new sermon series. We began a new teaching series through the Gospel of Mark. And sort of the big idea behind this book, the big idea behind the Gospel of Mark is to sort of settle the score on who the real Jesus is. That's why Mark is writing. And so when, when John Mark, affectionately we call him just, just Mark, when he wrote this book, the early church was like multiplying like baby rabbits all over the region. And at that time, people were forming their own narratives for who Jesus is. And so Mark writes, he writes his gospel to sort of clarify, to settle the score, to clarify for his re for his readers, who the real Jesus is. The unfiltered, the unadulterated Jesus. Jesus in the raw, right? And so that's something that we need today too. We need that today too because even some of us in this room, we have our own wrong assumptions about who Jesus is. And we've already seen since we started this, this series, just one and a half chapters in, we've already seen that Jesus is again and again and again displaying for us in this text. He's displaying for us how he's bigger and better than the assumptions that people make about him. We saw that he touched a leper who was like a social outcast, showing that, that God cares not just for our physical needs, but also our emotional needs. He ate with sinners and tax collectors, offending the religious elite of his day with just the scandalous grace and hospitality that, that he offered. He forgives a paralytic, showing that our deeper problem, our main problem is not our suffering, but our sin. And Jesus' critics, the scribes and the Pharisees, his haters, they start to get agitated with him. They're getting annoyed with him. They're peeved because he was offering sort of this spiritual renewal and forgiveness outside of their sort of self-made religious structures. Reminds me, like, like how, you guys want to know uh, a really effective way to get through the DMV? I figured this out this week. You want to know a really effective way to get through the DMV? There is none. Right? There is none. You got to wait in the line outside just so you can wait in the line inside, just so they can give you a number, and then you can sit and wait, um, only to be told that you know you are due for a smog check and you're going to have to come back. Um, may or may not be a hypothetical situation, but um, imagine that's like imagine that there's some guy who was like out in in the in, in the line there for people who are there to get there to to wait for like three three and a half hours. And some guy's coming up to every single person and is like, what do you need? Registration? Here's a sticker, right? Like, what do you need? 
new driver's license, snaps a picture, gives you a new license, right? Like, that would never happen. That would be awesome if that happened, but that would never happen because the powers of the DMV would not be happy, right? They're like, no, th you can't do that. These people need to go through the same process, the same inefficient process that we've had for the same, like, 15, 20 years. You have to go through the, 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 the process, the old rules, the old regulations, and that's what Jesus was doing. That's why the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, that's why his critics were so upset at him. They were so annoyed with him because he offered hope and renewal and forgiveness outside of their religious structures and regulations, outside of the hoops that they proudly jumped through. Jesus said, you don't need those hoops. They're not the way to true life. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He's doing a new thing. I'm halfway through my, uh, my, my three-month uh, trial of Apple Music right now, and I've been, been listening to the, a lot of old classics that I've never owned before. And so I've been, been subscribing to some cool playlists curated you know, by, you know, like Apple's most bona fide hipsters. And one song that keeps popping up in all these different playlists right now is the song Times Are Changing by Bob Dylan. You guys familiar with that song? Song from the mid-1960s, Times Are Changing by Bob Dylan. And in true sort of Dylan-esque rock and roll fashion, this song is a protest song. It's an anthem calling for change, calling for something new. And in the song, in the lyrics, you see he's writing, he's exhorting, he's writing to journalists, and then he's writing to politicians, and then he's writing to parents of families, and he declares to all of us through his song, he says, look, the old road is old news, and now we need to get on this new road of, of progress. We need to get on this new road of change. And the irony is that the song prophesies of change coming, needed change that's coming right around the corner. It prophesies of a change that's going to fix all of our problems, but the irony is that the change Dylan saw on the horizon hasn't fixed our problems, hasn't fixed the fabric of humanity. Fifty years later, it didn't deliver on its promise. This is why this song has become one of the most covered songs in all of rock history. It's performed again and again and again, especially at protest rallies. Just a month ago, it was covered by somebody else at a protest rally. It's a great song, but its timelessness and the fact that it, you know, its message never goes away really just paints sort of this broad stroke picture for us that humanity, that we, seem to just perpetually long for a deeper change at a deeper level. And that gnawing never goes away for us. And in our text this morning, we see Jesus, the Son of God, dropping the real truth. He's dropping real truth, eternal truth, that something brand new is breaking in. Something new and lasting. The generation that he speaks to in this text, the generation that Jesus speaks to, much like Dylan's generation, much like our generation, it's a restless generation. A restless generation. And what we'll see this morning is that the change Jesus brings, this new thing he brings, does not disappoint. And so we're in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. If you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn there now. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And in our text, we see that Jesus has yet another encounter with his critics. 
He has another encounter with his haters, and we're going to look at three things through this encounter with the Pharisees. First, we're going to look at what is the old thing that Jesus is undoing. Secondly, we're going to consider what is the new thing that he's doing. And lastly, we're going to look at what this means for us today. So let's handle that first one. What is the old thing Jesus is doing? Read verse 18 with me. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, they said to Jesus, Hey, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, then they cannot fast. Let me review our context here. Uh, A couple weeks ago, uh, Scott preached a fantastic sermon for us on verses 13 through 17. Jesus, in that text, he was partying, he was eating, he was sitting down at the table with sinners and tax collectors, and the Pharisaical haters confronted Jesus' new band of disciples. They confronted Jesus' new band of, of followers, and they asked them, hey, why does your boy Jesus, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why is he doing that? And what they failed to see is that if Jesus did not eat with sinners, then he would be eating alone, right? Because we're all sinners in need of grace. That was the point of the sermon a couple weeks ago. We're all sinners in need of grace. None of us is truly righteous on our own. And here in verse 18, we see that these critics continue to press in. They continue to press in because it wasn't enough for them to just confront the disciples, Jesus' followers, about who Jesus ate with. This time they confront Jesus himself. They confront Jesus himself on the fact that he's just eating at all. I want you to picture it, all right? Picture the scene here. Jesus is at a party with sinners He's at a party, he's eating, and he's drinking. And meanwhile, the Pharisees are all fasting. And now all these people want to know, hey, Jesus, what gives? Why are you doing that? What gives? Why do you you think you're too good to fast? And it's obvious that in their question that their intent is to criticize him. It's obvious that their intent is to discredit him. But the reason, the reason that they press in on this point of fasting is because fasting was a big deal for the religious elite of their day. It was a big deal to them. You see, the Old Testament law actually taught that there was only one day a year, only one day a year that God's people were required to fast. It was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the reason for fasting on that day was to mourn to express longing for God because God's people were under Roman oppression. They were exiled. And because of this, they mourned, they longed, they fasted, and they prayed that God would come and deliver them. It was a way to deprive themselves of something temporary so that they could focus on the eternal gift that God is to them in his deliverance. But the Pharisees, what they did is they took this law and they took it a little too far. They kind of took it to the next level, and they prayed, and they fasted, not once a year, not twice a year, but twice a week. Twice a week, they would fast to to sort of prove their pious hope to God and to others who were watching. 
There was even a popular sort of dominant group of Pharisees in this day that further missed the point, and they actually believed that if they could get every man, woman, and child to obey the Torah, to obey the Old Testament law for just a single day, if they could get everybody to obey the law for a whole day, then that, on that day, the true Messiah would finally come. That's not in the Bible anywhere. It's not in the Bible anywhere. That's just an extra rule, an extra belief that they imposed, that they added to God's law to make sure that they were sort of extra holy, right? The Pharisees were OCD with this. They, they were always creating extra rules to follow. They placed more weight on their oral tradition than they did on the written law of God. They overvalued their own self-made religion and they, and they sort of undervalued the true heart of God as revealed in the law itself. And so they sort of inadvertently create this culture now where sinners were shut out and the holy and the pious were on the in crowd. That's why we see them responding the way that they do throughout this gospel. And now we have to admit that sometimes... Sometimes there's a little bit of that in us. Sometimes there's a little fundamentalist in all of us that sort of mirrors, that sort of mirrors this tendency. When we add rules to the Bible in order to look or even just to feel like some next level Christian, right? Like we've, we've, we've achieved uh, the, the, the next achievement. So you do these things over here and you don't do these things, rules that aren't in the Bible, but you know, you tell yourself, if I do these things, if I don't do these things. And so it's like, if you want to be a good Christian, then we got to homeschool our kids. We got to send them to this place. We got to, we got to, I got to go to this conference. I got to read these particular books. Just made up rules to give the veneer of virtuous character. And Jesus, he was not about that. Jesus wanted nothing to do with that. He didn't conform to their religious rules. And man, the Pharisees noticed. They noticed and they were, they were ticked. They were peeved. They did not like that. Their thinking was, if Jesus and his growing band of disciples, if they want to be taken seriously by anybody, then they're going to have to get with the program. They're going to have to get with the fasting program. And so they call him out, Jesus why aren't you fasting like the rest of us? I want you to see Jesus' response here. His response is totally brilliant. And it brings us to our next point. What is the new thing Jesus is doing? I want you to see here what the new thing Jesus is doing in his response. Read verse 19 with me. It says, Jesus said to them, he replies to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? For as long as they have the bridegroom with them, then they cannot fast. Now you gotta love the brilliant snark of Jesus, right? Like I love that the Lord Jesus Christ almost never just straight up answers a direct question. They'll ask a direct question and he'll respond with a story. Or he'll respond by throwing another question back at them. And that's what he does here. He throws another question back at them. The Pharisees are like, hey, Jesus, everyone's fasting. Why aren't you? And Jesus responds, you think I'm missing the point? Your question is missing the point. And then he tells them, look, here's a better question. Can a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? It's probably not the response they expected, right? Probably not the response they expected. So what is Jesus getting at? Why does he bring up this point about the wedding? Now, 
you got to see this because the wedding analogy is massively important here. Jesus did not use a birthday party as a metaphor. He didn't use an anniversary party. He intentionally drops this image of a, of, of a wedding. And why does he do that? What is the relevance of a wedding? You see, in this culture, in this day and age that Jesus is living in, weddings were the ultimate party. They were the ultimate party. They were where it was at. There was no Times Square New York countdown celebration back then. There were no days-long festivals in the desert. In this day, in this day, and in this culture, weddings were the ultimate celebration, the ultimate party. A simple wedding was where it was at. And if a wedding took place in your village, then you were there. You were there. It didn't matter who was getting married. If you, wedding was taking place in your community, in your village, you would be there. Your whole family would be there. All your neighbors would be there. The entire village came out for a wedding. There was not even a honeymoon getaway at the end of the night because the celebration usually continued on for a whole week. Wedding celebrations were week long. It was the most joyful week of the whole year for a whole village. And when you attend a wedding as a guest, your only responsibility back then, your only responsibility as a wedding guest was to have a blast. That was your only responsibility, to enjoy the people and to enjoy the feast. And so, therefore, it was unthinkable and socially unacceptable to fast during a wedding week. Even the Pharisees knew that you don't fast during the week of a wedding. Imagine for a moment that you're going to a wedding like this and the bridegroom comes up to you. And he's so excited. The groom comes up to you and you're a guest and he says, can you believe it? Can you believe it? It's finally here. The day that we've all been longing for, the day that we've been waiting for, that we've been praying for is here. My wedding day is here. And beaming with excitement, he grabs maybe a slab of fine steak for you or maybe some carrot cake for dessert. Maybe he grabs a bottle of champagne and he says, brother, or says, sister, feast with me. Let's celebrate. The time is finally here. And imagine you're like, Nah, I'm good. I'm fasting. Right? No, thank you. But that would be totally inappropriate. That would be totally inappropriate at a party like that. The DJ would record scratch the music to a halt. The whole crowd would spin their heads in shock, and someone would go, what did you just say? Right? Because in this culture, your only responsibility as a wedding guest, again, was to have a good time. And if you're not there to party... If you're not there to celebrate, then you shouldn't have come at all. This is why Jesus begs the question to his critics, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And what we can't miss is that what he's saying is that there's a reason that his disciples, that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. And it's because Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the groom, and he is with them. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, and, and just so you know, like that, that was so provocative. Don't miss that point. It was so provocative because in the Old Testament, only God got that title, bridegroom. 
This is the most provocative, the most scandalous part of the passage. And it's also the reason that celebration is tied to this particular moment. What Jesus is saying here is he was making an announcement. He was making a pronouncement of hope, a declaration that what they hoped for, what God's people had been fasting for 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 centuries, was finally here. Jesus' nickname is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And because God is with us, let's celebrate. Because God is with us, let's party. So they ask, why? Why are you feasting? And his response is, why aren't you feasting? They ask, why aren't you fasting? His response is, why aren't you partying? Why aren't you celebrating the kingdom of God? There's no good answer to that question. I want you to see now, as we continue, that Jesus gives us two more metaphors to unpack the new thing that he is doing. Look at verse 21 with me. Verse 21 says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, then the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does... The wine will burst, the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now what Jesus is saying here, what he's saying is you can't mix the old with the new. You can't mix the old way of doing things with his new way of doing things. He's saying, look, you can't put a piece of raw denim to patch up a hole in your old pair of jeans, right? No one does that because it doesn't work. The new cloth will eventually shrink, cutting a bigger hole into your jeans, and the whole thing will get ruined. The same point with the wineskin. You see, they didn't have bottling factories back then, and so for, for wine back then, you, you would have to create wine and ferment it and store wine in these wineskins that were made out of raw animal hide because it was stretchy and, and pliable. And it needed to be that way because new wine, when you age it, new wine, when it ferments, it creates gas. It expands. And so you need the wineskin to be as stretchy and pliable as, as possible. Like old wineskin was, was, was dry. It was solid. And therefore, it was, it was fragile. And so if you put new wine in a crusty old wineskin, then when that wineskin expands, the skin's going to burst and you're going to lose both the wine and the wineskin. I, I, I'm like pretty bad at this. When it, you, I mean, I've never made wine in wineskin, but you guys know, uh, like I all the time, uh, my, my wife will like open the, the, the freezer and she'll just see like this, this soda can burst everywhere, right? Or sometimes I'll leave a bottle in there and there's just like shards of glass, right? Like that's what that's like. It's like when you accidentally leave something in the freezer overnight and then you wake up to shards of glass and no more Coca-Cola, right? Total bummer. Um, The point that Jesus is making here is that the new thing that he's doing cannot be contained in their old structures of their self-made religion. The new thing Jesus is doing 
cannot be contained in their old religion. You see, there are some thing, some things in this world where like today it's sort of fashionable and chic to like mix the old with the new, right? Like mid-century modern furniture, traditional tattoos, Wes Anderson films, right? Like it's kind of cool to mix the old with the new with some things, but, but not with the inbreaking kingdom of God. Jesus is saying you can't do that with the inbreaking kingdom of God. He's very specifically calling his critics out on their old way of doing the Jewish religion with their, their added never-ending list of do's and never-ending list of don'ts. And he's saying, look, you can't add Jesus to your old religion. He's a new patch that will tear away at an old garment with age. He is new wine that will break the old wineskin. And so he's saying, look, because the bridegroom is here, because I'm here, because I'm present, there are now shocking new implications for the whole structure of how you relate to God. Jesus is saying, because he's here now, he changes everything. There's shocking new implications for how the whole structure of how we relate to God. He's saying the old has gone and the new has come. The old is gone and the new has come. The old sacrificial system is replaced by Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The old habit of outward religious identity is replaced by an inward new spiritual birth. The old way in the temple is replaced with the new temple, the risen Jesus. Worship in Jerusalem is replaced with worshiping in spirit and in truth. Times are a-changing, Jesus says. And this change, the change that he brings, is lasting change. Real change, deep change. The saving work of Jesus Christ is providing a new way of relating to God. Which leads us to our third point. So now what does this mean for us today? What does this mean? What does all this talk about fasting and feasting and wineskins and cloth? What does this mean for us today? One it means that we can't mix the old with the new. We can't mix the old with the new. The gospel is not something that you can patch onto your life. It's not something to flaunt on your sleeve. It's a whole new garment. A whole new garment. You can't turn the gospel of salvation by faith alone into a religion of a new religion of works where you find your identity more in what you do for God or how you look to others than you in your enjoying God himself. And man, Christians can really miss the point on this. We can really miss the point on this. During my, 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 my church planning residency, they, they really drilled this point into us because they pointed out, you know, it's so easy for us. It's so easy for, for pastors, for leaders. It's really easy for any Christian to get caught up in obsessing over, you know, am I saying the right things? Am I doing the right things? Am I doing the Christian things? Am I saying the Christian vernacular? Where we, we make so much effort, we obsess over looking put together on the outside when we're dry on the inside. Where we let the sins of bitterness or lust or gluttony just fester and grow. Put on a happy smile for everyone else, but we're broken on the inside. I've had pastor friends, many of them over the years, old mentors of mine, fall into this rut getting snared into this trap. 
where they eventually had their secret sins exposed and now they're not in ministry anymore. And everyone thought about these guys that they were, they were, everyone thought that they were like good with the Lord, right? But they were really just good at managing people's perceptions on the outside. Well, they lacked, well, they lacked the true vibrant presence of prayer and presence and intimacy with God on the inside. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. Don't buy into the pharisaical lie that how you, how you look on the outside is more important than how healthy you are at, at the heart level. I mean, if you do that, it'll drain you. It'll dry you up. Remember, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if you're a follower of him, remember your identity as a Christian is not based in what you do. It's based in who you are as a son, who you are as a daughter of the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to start there. It also means, it also means that Jesus won't mix with your other religious tendencies. Jesus won't mix with your other religions. You can't say, I'm into Eastern mysticism, and I'm just going to add a little bit of Jesus to that. You also can't say, I'm going to add Jesus to the religion of materialism, or I'm going to add Jesus to the doctrine of consumerism, or the dogma of my racism. Like, that won't mix. They won't mix. If you try to add Jesus to your narcissism, then your Christianity won't really take. It won't really take root. Do you believe? Do you believe that the kingdom of God is at hand? That's Jesus' message. That's the first gospel message he preaches in Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that the kingdom of God is at hand? Do you believe that in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is with us? If you do, then that will totally reshape your whole reality. That will give you a new nature, a new identity. Not just a new way of doing things, it'll give you a new identity, a new view on the world, a new view on your whole existence. C.S. Lewis said, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce the better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. Love that. Let's look at the second thing. The second thing this means for us today. It means that we need to treasure like the disciples did, we need to treasure the nearness of Christ. That's where we need to start. You need to treasure the nearness of Christ. Notice that in, the, in our text this morning, these disciples, notice how they respond to Jesus, unlike the ones following the Pharisees. Notice that those who are with the bridegroom are changed by him. They're changed by him. They no longer mourn like everyone else is doing with their fasting, they rejoice. And they rejoice because he is with them. I want you to see again the emphasis of his nearness, of his withness in, in verse 19. Read it with me. Jesus replies to them. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is, what does it say? With them. As long as I have the bridegroom, what? With them, they cannot fast. Jesus is with them. And the Pharisees, they didn't get that. 
They didn't get this important point. The bridegroom was standing right there. The Messiah, the Redeemer, the prophesied one was right in front of them, and they totally missed him. Like nobody, when you go to a wedding, nobody's leaning over to the guest next to them, pointing at the groom when he's standing there waiting for his bride and the preacher and his groomsmen. Like nobody's pointing at him and saying, hey, who's that guy? Right? Like nobody does that. You should know who the groom is. You should know because of who he is, because of where he's standing. You have all the signs. The bridegroom, for them, was right there, and they didn't recognize him. They missed the big E on the eye chart. They were more aware of their oral traditions, their outward piety, than they were of who Jesus was. They were more aware of the outward works than they were of who was standing right in front of them. What about you? What about you this morning? What are you more aware of? What do you treasure most? What do you find your identity in? Is it your religious performance? Or is it the presence of Christ? Do you know Him? Do you spend time with Him? Do you have the kind of joy that the disciples had? being with the bridegroom? Do you have the kind of joy that they have? Do you have joy in the presence of God? Do you long to look at Jesus? Do you long to look at him, to gaze at his beauty, to gaze at his majesty, at his glory? He's the one who came to seek the lost. He's the one who came to save the sinner, to redeem the broken, to set the captives free, to reconcile us back to God, to break in the new kingdom, to inaugurate the new covenant, to draw us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And so if anyone has reason to celebrate, if anyone has reason to feast, to party, then it's a disciple, a follower of Jesus. The disciples knew that. It was true for them back then, and it's true for us right now. Treasure his presence. Treasure the presence of Christ. Jesus isn't just saying to them, he's not just saying to them, look, I've come to bring the party. He's saying, I am the party. I am the walking celebration of the shockingly new thing that God is doing. I am the good news of God's grace. And so it's not time to mourn, it's time to celebrate. You know what? That's what following Jesus is like. That's what following Jesus is like. It's not a bore. It's not, it's not trudging. It's not out of obligation. Following Jesus is like, his presence is like going to a wedding party. It's like celebrating. Look at now the third thing that this means for us today. The third thing this means for us is that today we fast. Today we fast. Now, you might be confused. Like, isn't not fasting the whole point of this text? But no, not fasting while he was with them in bodily form was the point of this text. And we know this because elsewhere he tells his disciples, he's teaching them and he says, hey, when you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites. And so Jesus is not anti-fast. We also know this because of verse 20 in our text. Go, there, go back up there with me. Verse 20, it says, Jesus is speaking and he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, the disciples. 
and then they will fast in that day. Now in this verse, Jesus is affirming for Christ, the fasting. He's affirming fasting for Christians today. Now we are in a time, like this verse says, where it's okay to fast. It says, the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And that will be an appropriate time to fast. And that happened. That happened. Jesus died. He was taken away. He died. He rose. He ascended now to the Father where he sits right now. And this is the time where it's okay to fast. Quick note on fasting. To be clear, the way that we fast today is not like the Pharisees who missed the point. All right? Fasting is not a way of impressing others like it was for them. Fasting is not a way of showing that you're on the in crowd like it was for them. It's not a way of getting God to do what you want, right? It's not a way of twisting God's arm. Nor is it a way of proving to God that you're willing to suffer for him, right? Like, God, look what I'm willing to do for you. Fasting is giving up a daily activity like, like eating food, in order to sort of recalibrate, reorient your focus on eternal matters. That's what fasting is. It's a way for us to awaken our hearts and our minds to the nearness of Christ through the gospel. It's a way to say, it's, it's like saying no to a lesser desire like hunger, so you can say yes to a greater desire like hunger for God. It's a way to, looking, to look forward and longing to the second coming, to Jesus' imminent return. And when Jesus does return, when Jesus returns at the end of all time, at his second coming, the Bible says there will be another wedding feast. Revelation 19 calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that feast, at that feast, Revelation tells us, we will all, as followers of Jesus, be sitting around the table with him. Not just a spiritual nearness that we have with him now, but a physical presence, a physical nearness with him. And we won't just be his guests. We, the church throughout the ages, will sit with him as his collective bride. The bride that he came for, the bride that he pursued, the bride that he wooed, the bride that he bled and died for. Verse 20 in our text told us that the bridegroom will one day be taken away. Jesus says one day the bridegroom will be taken away. But bridegrooms, bridegrooms are never supposed to be taken away from a wedding. That never happened. So why does that happen to Jesus? Why does that happen? It's because two years after the events in our text this morning, the Pharisees and their old ways of doing things will eventually come after Jesus. The Pharisees and their old ways will hunt after Jesus to beat his body, to drag him to the cross. And in that moment, Jesus said no to the lesser desire of being spared from the cross so that he could say yes to the greater desire of being your Savior. And because he was taken away in his death on the cross for our sins, we can be brought near to God. We can be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that will be 
the day. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.